0: Hertz Schultz uh, is the co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton hotel chain, and that's who you just saw in that video. He has made millions of dollars um, through the hotel chain, uh, living basically on two fairly simple business principles that he says. That if you will live out these two principles, you can be a successful business. The first principle is that you are to never, ever be complacent with where you are at. Number two is that you always strive for excellence in everything that you do. In fact, he wrote a book called Excellence Wins, and he writes that successful people and successful organizations, quote, emerge as we measure our realities and make adjustments. And then we measure again, and we keep adjusting. No matter how good you are, you keep looking for the hidden defects, and you keep moving closer and closer to this idea of true excellence. Excellence. He goes on to say, when asked about the financial part of it, he says that if you will do with excellence what the customer loves, then the money will always follow. According to this guy, a successful business is one where the employees not only understand the need for excellence, but they take part of it and they want to strive for excellence. Their selves. And so uh, Schultz became a millionaire um, off of this idea and he uh, this expectation of excellence. And he now travels around to different companies and travels around to different uh, businesses trying to teach other business leaders to do the exact same thing. And the video you saw was that he was uh, partnering with a bank. And so he is taking what he's done in the service industry, in the hotel industry, and saying that if this bank will do what he's done, they will not settle for where they're at. And they'll always strive for excellence, not just when they pick up the phone, but when the teller talks to you and when the the person talks to you about a loan, that if this bank will do this, they will conquer the banking industry. And I don't know if you caught the end quote of that video or not, and I know his his accent, he grew up in Germany, it may be a little hard, but he, he ends that video with this simple question. He says, did you come to work to paint the wall, or did you come to work to create a masterpiece today? And so I don't know his background, I don't know his religious beliefs, um, but his business principles sound pretty similar to what Paul is praying for the, book, for the Philippians. And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 this morning, and we're going to see that Paul is really praying for this church to do the exact same thing. One, to not be complacent with where they're at, and two, to strive for and seek after excellence. He's praying for excellence for them. And so I'm going to ask, um, for the, as we work through this prayer, uh, that we kind of look and evaluate our lives. And are we settling for where we're at? Are we striving for something greater in all these different aspects of our spiritual life? And so I want to ask you that question uh, that he asked uh, on that video for you this morning. Did you come to church this morning to paint the wall? Or did you come to be part of the masterpiece that God is painting and doing through your spiritual journey? So let's get your Bibles and read uh, Philippians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 9, and we'll just look at three very short verses, uh, but very powerful verses. In Paul's prayer to the Philippians, he says in verse 9, he says, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you can approve the things that are superior and be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for a reckless love that you had for us. God, we are so thankful for a love that chased us down even when we were running away from you. God, for a love that would climb every mountain and kick open every door to come after us even when we weren't sure that that's what we wanted God, a love that would fight for us even when we were fighting against it. And so, God, I thank you for that love. And I pray that that we meant every word of those songs that we sang. God, our simple prayer is what we just sang to you. God, that your words speak to us. Here in this quiet and here in this moment. God, that here is our heart. And we long to hear your words this morning. And God, if we find ourselves at a loss for words, if we find ourselves completely absorbed in what You are saying through Your Word, then praise You all the more for it. And so here we are. And we simply pray that Your Word will speak to our hearts, speak to our lives. God, that You will move us from complacency and mediocrity to the place of excellence that You have called us to be in every aspect that You're going to speak to our hearts today, Father. And so, God, I pray that we just sit and we just absorb what it is that you have for us. Feeling your presence and feeling your your existence in this room and in this place this morning, Father. So speak to us and let us hear your gospel and your grace this morning, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Most of us, when we were in school, and, and some of us that are in school we probably have a favorite subject. There is one subject that we love uh, more than all the rest. And there was one subject that maybe we, we really liked it and we really loved it more than all the others. And so uh, for some people, it's history. For some people, it's English. For some people, it's math. For some people, it's social studies or, or science. And and so for all of us, we, we kind of had this, this idea that uh, we really loved this one class. And so when we loved a particular class, We enjoyed going to that class. We wanted to go to that class. We went to all of our other classes because we had to, right? Like, I went to English class my whole high school career because I had to. I never once enjoyed walking into an English class, believe it or not. All right? I just didn't do it. But I had other classes that I enjoyed walking into that I wanted to walk into because I loved that particular subject. And as I started teaching, and I've kind of observed students having favorite subjects, and they like this subject, and they, like, they don't like that subject, I have kind of came to this idea that the reason uh, that kids and people love a certain subject and hate others really kind of boils down to two things one is their ability to understand that subject and two is their ability to apply that subject or see that subject lived out so it's it's not just an information thing about them that if they love a subject it becomes very practical to them it becomes something they see um, in the real world that's involved around them you see the one of the reasons that some of us don't like a certain subject is because it's all in a textbook and we don't see how it fits with anything in our lives all right and i'm going to be totally honest and, and transparent with you the reason i hate in English class when I was in, in high school was because I had no clue why Shakespeare was important to anything that I was ever going to do in my life, all right? I just didn't have any purpose for it. And so I didn't care for English, but I cared for other subjects. For some of you, You may like history. History may be your favorite subject, okay? And so if history is your favorite subject, if you love it, then you probably don't have any problem remembering dates or events in a certain sequence. And my guess is that you saw history more than just a textbook like many of the rest of us did. You saw it, and you saw it being lived out and sometimes even repeated all around you. And so you were absorbing history and living history because you were loving it. And you begin to filter everything that you were seeing around you through the vision or through the lens of history. For some of you, you hated history, but math was your subject. And so for some of you, when you loved math, you were numbers were your friends. All right. And you loved numbers and you even loved it when they took out the numbers and put letters in there. All right. And some of you are like, boo, that was the worst day ever. Whoever thought I would have to know what X stood for? Okay, but if math was your, if math was the subject you love, you didn't just want to solve for x, like you got excited when you found out what x was in an equation. You were excited that, that, that you had an answer at the end of this problem, and so you loved the, the idea of it. you loved the getting through the questions and coming up with it, and then you begin to see that apply to everything. You begin to see everything through numbers, and you begin to think of everything as a numerical value to it, and you begin to realize that numbers really do rule the world, all right? It makes a difference in everything, from who wins a political campaign, to how many people are going to get the flu this year, to how many feet you have to be apart from every- Numbers are everywhere, right? And so you begin to filter and view everything through this lens of numbers, because it applied to everything, for some of us, it wasn't history and it wasn't math. For some of us, it was science. We, we were science people, and, and we didn't have a problem understanding the patterns and structures of atoms and, and elements on the periodic table. And, and my guess is that if you were a science person, you didn't just uh, like reading about it in your textbook, but but you really saw it lived out, and, and you enjoyed watching it uh, kind of unfold before you. You not only appreciated the atom and the structures of atom, but you began to appreciate the bonds that exist existed between them and what you really begin to appreciate is what those things were allowed to do how those things interacted. And so when you begin to look through the lens of science at the world, you realize that it's really not numbers. It really is all science that controls everything from the breath that you take to the makeup of your body to the chairs that you're sitting in, and the reason that chair holds you up rather than letting you down, all of it is based on science. And so if you're a science person, you love that subject because you see it applied in everything that is around you. And so science becomes the lens that you see everything through. It shapes the way that you view the world. And so people often love a certain subject, they begin to excel in that subject because it becomes somewhat easy for them because they're seeing it everywhere. And for someone who loves a subject, the more that they love it the more it becomes uh, beyond just an academic exercise, the more they they want to get information not just from a book, but they want to see it lived out. You see, a science person gets really excited when they hear about a new discovery or a new way that science is being used to impact the world or or, or the people are discovering how it's already impacted the world. It becomes not just something they've learned, but a way of life and a way that they change and, and to make decisions and so the more that we learn about the subject that we love, the more that we love it. And the more that we love it and apply it, the more that we want to know about it. And so we find that, that there's this cycle of we love a subject and we want to know more about that subject. And then we love seeing that new information kind of applied in our lives and the world around us. And that fuels for us an even greater love for that subject. All right? So you see this cycle just over and over again. I love science. I read about science, I see science lived out in the world around me, and it just makes me love science even more. And so then I want to read more about science, and I want to know more about science, and I want to see that applied to my life and to the world around me. And it makes me love it even more. And so believe it or not, this is the exact cycle that Paul is praying for for the people of uh, of Philippians in this book of Philippians. He is praying for excellence for them, and he really prays that they are striving for excellence in this idea of love. The excellence in love. Paul starts his prayer in this book, in this prayer for this church, like he does most of his other prayers, right? We, we looked at a prayer last week and a couple of weeks ago where he starts with this idea of thanksgiving. And, and a lot of times Paul starts his prayers that way. I'm thankful for you because of this. Or I'm thanking God on your behalf because of this. And honestly, he starts this prayer kind of the same way. We didn't read that part of his prayer, but he starts this book of Philippians, same idea. I'm thanking God for you, all right? And specifically for them, he's thanking them for this partnership that they have formed, that they have helped him spread the gospel. They've helped him spread the message of Jesus Christ, right? They've sent him stuff. They, they helped him out when he was in prison. And so he's thankful for this partnership that he has with them. But another part of his prayer is that he is thankful that God has started something good within that church, right? In Philippians 1, 6, it says that I I know that God who started a good work in you is faithful and will see it on to completion. So he's thankful that God has started something, and even though he's had to leave, God didn't leave with him. He's thankful that God's going to continue this work that he started in this church, that he started in this process. And so what he's saying is, listen, you guys, I am so thankful that you've come to be Christians. I'm so thankful that you started out on this journey of faith. But what I'm kind of afraid And what I'm really praying for is that you don't stop. I know God is faithful and I know God's going to carry it on to completion, but I'm afraid that some of us are just going to get stuck. All right? We're going to do what we call in the Baptist church we're going to get our fire insurance and then be done. It means we're going to walk an aisle when we were a young kid and we're going to accept Christ when we were a young kid and check. We know we're set for heaven, and that's all there is to our Christian faith. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not at all all that there is to the Christian faith. You see, walking the aisle and getting baptized is not the end of your spiritual journey. It is the very beginning of your spiritual journey. And so what Paul prays for in the very beginning of this prayer in verse 9 is he says that, that in his heart is that he's praying for the Philippians. He says, I pray this. That you love or your love will keep on growing in knowledge and in every kind of discernment. It's hard for these people is, listen, I know you are here, but don't stop here. I want you to keep on growing. I want you to move from here ongoing, continually ongoing, to this idea of excellence. I don't want you to ever stop growing. I don't want you to ever be complacent with where you're at. You're in a good place, but you're not at the best place you can be. To get there, you've got to keep growing. You've got to keep growing in this idea of excellence. And so he kind of gives us this word picture of a river. Right? Now, most of us are familiar with rivers. Rivers are always flowing. They always have water in them. Right? But if you see a river during the summertime when it's really dry, it's within a confined space. Right? It's got certain banks that it's within. But if it starts to rain, and it rains a lot for a lot of days... You go to that same river the next day, and it's rained the, the, the day before, maybe the day before, and you notice that that river who once was down here has suddenly got higher. It's deeper than it once was, right? And then if it keeps raining, if more water keeps getting poured into it, it comes up even more. And so then it gets so much water trying to flow through it that it can't be contained within the banks, and so it begins to flood and spread out. All right? So this is what Paul is praying for the Philippians. He says, "I'm praying that your love is growing somewhat like a river, that it gets deeper and that it also gets wider, that it spreads out and takes over and impacts not just your life but all the stuff that is around you, kind of like a river that is flooding." And so he gives kind of two very specific ways that he wants this this love to be growing. And so understand that when Paul talks about this excellent of love, He's not just talking about this warm, fuzzy feeling. He's not talking about this emotional attachment that we sometimes get with this image of love that we're thinking. If we look back at verse 9, we see that he's praying that their love keeps growing in two very specific ways. Right? And I told somebody this morning that you would think these three little short verses would just be small. And we could get out like really early, but we're not because this is huge. Okay? In fact, I could probably spend most of our time, and I will spend most of our time, right here in verse 9. Because it is so important what Paul is putting together here. And so we've got to make sure that we understand this. Paul says there's two ways that I want your love to be growing. And very specific, he says, first, I want your love to grow and keep on growing in knowledge. Okay? Sounds like a simple thing. I want you to keep on growing in love and your love to keep growing in knowledge. This is the depth part of the growing of the river. This is the depth part of the excellence uh, uh love that he's talking about. Honestly, this is the theological knowledge of God. Right? So this is, he's praying that, that their love for God will grow deeper, not in this emotional way, but a deeper understanding of who He is, that He wants them to grow in their knowing God and God's attributes and knowing who God is and what God is like. Right? That's what theology is. I don't know if you knew that or not. That's all theology is, is knowing God and knowing His attributes, what God is like. And so people and pastors spend years of their lives answering that question through what God has revealed to us. God, who are you and what are you like? This God that's out there somewhere. And so what Paul is praying for, he says, listen, I don't want you to be satisfied with what you know about God. Let's be honest. If we were were true in our knowledge of God and what we measured about our knowledge of God, we know about this much of who God really is. And Paul says, yeah, that's a good start, but that's not all that there is right because Paul says I want your love to keep growing in knowledge so it, you know this much but I want you to know this much and I want you to tomorrow know this much and I want you to keep growing in this knowledge of God so that it becomes so deep that, that this God that you thought you knew mean you are just overwhelmed by who he is and Paul is praying that they continue growing in their love for God each and every day because each day they know him more and they know his character more and they know his attributes more and honestly This is the part that we sometimes as Christians, if we're honest, this is the part that we omit. That sometimes we just think if we just love God that that's all there is to it. But that's not what Paul is praying for. He says, listen, I want you to love God because you know God more today than you did yesterday. And honestly, if you know Him more today, then you're going to love Him more today. And if you know Him more tomorrow, you're going to love Him in a deeper and more meaningful way tomorrow. And so to achieve this, this takes work. Whoa, we don't like that idea. We don't like the fact that now we've got to work in our knowledge of who God is, but i got to tell you, you can come and you can sit every Sunday morning and listen to every word I say, and that's not going to give you what Paul is praying for here. It's not going to get you the depth that Paul is seeking after. He's wanting you to grow in the depth of your knowledge. This is a work that you're going to have to put in. This is what you've got to strive for. This is the type of knowledge that we get into God's Word and we look and see who God is and who He says He is and reveal to us through His Word. And so this takes work. It's not just passively sitting and listening to a sermon on Sunday morning. It's not just listening to a sermon on your car radio. This is where you for yourself dive into the Word of God. This is where you for yourself search and you try to find this answer of who God is, what God is like, and so you grow in the depth of your love for God because you know Him in a deeper way than you did yesterday and last week. And so we can kind of measure this in your life and kind of the, the measurement that he talked about that we measure and we adjust, we measure and adjust. Let me ask you a simple question. Do you know more about God today than you did a week ago? Do you know more about God today than you did five days ago or six days ago or a month ago? I occasionally look at the stock market. Okay, I look at the stock market every day, not because I have any knowledge of it whatsoever, but I know this that when it's green, it's good, and when it's red, it's bad, okay? That's what I know about the stock market, when I look at it on my phone. And so there's there's a button on my phone that I can look at it, and I can show, like, this is where it's at today. This is where it was at five days ago. This is where it was at a month ago. This is where it was at six months ago. This is where it's been at from the beginning of the year to now. This is where it was at a year ago. And so I want you to kind of, for just a moment, just gauge your knowledge of God based on that, If we were to hit a button and look at your knowledge of God today versus your knowledge of God five days ago, would there be a green or a red or would it just be gray? means there's no difference whatsoever. If you hit the button and said, this is my knowledge of God today and this is my knowledge of God a month ago or six months ago, how much difference would there be in between those two spots? Because I've really got news for you. There's really not a gray in this situation. You're either green or you're red. There's no level playing ground where I know the same today that I knew about yesterday. Because what you're doing is if I know the same about God today that I knew six months ago or a year ago or five years ago, it really means that you've allowed something else to take the place of your knowledge of love for God. And so there is no gray. There is only red and there is only green. And so let me ask you that simple question. In your measurement of what you know about God today, is it more or less than what you knew about God six months ago, or a year, or three years ago, or four years ago? Or take it all the way back to the day that you got saved. Because for some of us, we started a good work. God started a good work with us, and then we just stopped. Because we weren't willing to put in the work to know God more. And see, there's more to this excellent love than just this academic knowledge of knowing God. He goes on to say... In verse 9, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge, and get this also, and in every kind of discernment. You see, the first part is the depth of our love and knowledge of God. It is the the knowing, kind of the the academic side of God, of who God is and what God wants and and what He's like. And the second part is kind of the width of it. This is when the river really starts to flow out of its bank, and it goes not just deeper, but now it starts to go wider and starts to influence not just our lives, but everything that our life touches and everything that our life comes into contact with. This is the overflowing of the banks of the river where it bleeds. And every, this is the, the more practical aspect of knowing God. You see, this idea of every kind of discernment, this speaks more to our, our ethical decisions, our ethical stands. This is where Paul is saying, really, I'm really praying that your moral compass is set. And then it keeps on growing and keeps on expanding because you encounter more and more as the river flows. And so I'm really praying that that your knowledge of who God is really starts to impact the decisions that you make, that it's grown in depth and now it's growing in width and it's impacting everything that's around you. You see, this is the part where, where our decisions start to be influenced. The way that we live our life, the way that we make decisions, really starts to change when we know God at this level. You see, this is where the decisions, like how we spend and invest our money, makes a difference. Believe it or not, that is an ethical and moral decision. All right, the Decisions of who we vote for and which party we vote for. Those are ethical and moral decisions and this is what Paul is praying for. I'm praying that your love for God and knowledge has grown so much that you can make this decision. And and he says, listen, I'm also praying that that your decisions of of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable acceptable for us as a society, for us as Christians, these are moral decisions. These are things that that Paul is praying for that we have decisions that we're going to firmly tie to and we're going to be firmly growing in these decisions. Why? Because we know God more and we know what God character is, so we will know if God would approve of X or if He wouldn't approve of X. Sorry for you non-math people. We would know if God would approve of this or not approve of this. Why? Because we know God more today than we did yesterday. We can make a more informed decision on our vote and I'm not going to get political, but we can make a more informed decision today than we did four years ago or eight years ago because we know God more. We know what God is like more today than we did four years or eight years ago. And so, our question then becomes not only is our knowledge of God increasing, but what are we doing with that knowledge of God? Is that increasing? Is it changing the way that we see the landscape that is around us? Is it impacting the landscape that's going on around us? So, understand that Paul is praying very specifically in verse 9. And what he's doing is he's really tying and combining these ideas, these three ideas together of love, theology, their academic knowledge of God, and really their practical and their moral, ethical standards. So Paul is really balancing these three in a wonderful way. And he says, listen, you need to understand that these three things, love, knowledge of God... And your ethical standards, they're all tied in together. And notice what Paul is praying. I'm praying that they grow together, as they're blended together. And Paul's praying that as one grows, the others grow. And, and, and part of the reason he's praying this so exclusively and, and so tightly, connecting these ideas, is because Paul has seen what happens through another church when one of these ideas outgrows and outshadows and overshadows the other two. All right? He sees what happens when we allow love to grow really just kind of unrestrained and we act like the theology or the ethical standards either don't matter or they're non-existent. You see, it's a very different picture of Christianity when we allow one of these three to really overshadow and become all that we focus on. D.A. Carson wrote about this. He said that without the constraints of knowledge and insight or discernment, he says that love will easily disintegrate into sentimentalism, and it will disintegrate into the kind of mushy pluralism that the world often confuses for love. You see, when we allow love to grow unrestrained without theology, when we allow love to grow uh, unrestrained without proper understanding of who God is or what God approves of, without a proper understanding of God's standard, then we become like another church that Paul wrote to. He wrote to the church of Corinth. And, and if you read the, the letters of the church of Corinth, man, I'm going to be honest with you, they read like Paul could have wrote that letter to many, many, many churches today. Because what we find in the church of Corinth is that he's having to tell them, listen, you guys have let love overshadow everything else. You, you, you've got this idea of love, but you've given up the idea of theology, and you've given up this idea of a moral standard. Why? Because you didn't want to be judgmental. Because you didn't want to draw a line and say this is acceptable and this is not. You wanted to be all inclusive where everybody felt included, where where everybody felt like they could be part of what was going on. And so you, you told everybody that you were totally built, that you were totally founded on love. And so you gave in to love without any constraints of knowledge and ethics. And so when you're willing to drop this standard of of theology and you're willing to drop this standard of standards that god has you really open your doors and you can say we we love everything and we're going to accept everything and that was the theology of the corinthian church and that's the reason that when we look at the church of corinth and the reason that paul writes them he writes a whole chapter about what love really is It's one of the most famous passages um, that that we hear at weddings. And it's part of the reason that in that passage, in 1 Corinthians 13, in verse 6, it says this, that Paul says, that love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. You see, for love to be excellent, it's got to be rooted and grounded in the truth. For love to be excellent... It's got to be rooted in what God says is true and got to be rooted in what God says is right and a good, clear, moral standing. You see, the Corinth church and the church of Corinth had this such inclusive idea of love that love was all that mattered, that it didn't matter if you were having an affair with somebody you weren't married to. You could come in and you could even stand up and preach because love was all that mattered. It didn't matter what your standards were. In fact, they didn't have any standards. Love was all that mattered. And so Paul writes to this church and he says, Listen, you've got to understand that love is great, but it can't overshadow everything else because it doesn't delight in wrongdoing. It delights in the truth. That you can't leave the truth to pursue love without bringing the truth along with you. You see, when we get this idea of love without the standards of comp- or without the, the standards of theology without this ethical standard, we, we really change the picture of what Christianity looks like. You see, the moment that we give up the standards of who God is and what God says is true is the moment that we open our doors. And we become completely inclusive instead of exclusive. You're like, well, I thought that's what we wanted. We do, but we have to do it within the standard that God says because at the moment that we say love trumps everything, love is the measure of everything, is the moment that we say there's really no standards by which God can judge us or that we can judge one another. And let's take that to the full conclusion. If there is no standard by which God can judge us or we can judge each other, really means there is no such thing as a sin because God can't judge us as sinners because love Love is all that matters. And so if there's no such thing as sin in this world that love is all that matters, then that means I don't really need a Savior because I've never done anything wrong because I love everybody, and so I've never needed a Savior, which means I never needed Jesus, which means He died on the cross for nothing. You see, that's a very different picture of Christianity. In fact, that's not Christianity at all. Any idea of Christianity without a need for a Savior because there is nothing but love gives this idea that you don't need Christ. Any idea that love is all you need without knowing God and the standards of God totally gives away the idea that you are a sinner and you needed Christ because you were already judged by God. You see, we can't just cling on to this idea of love and leave behind who God is, who is loving us. And the moment that we do, it's not truth anymore. The moment that we do, we really have become a polytheistic, pluralistic religion that represents nothing that God says and nothing that God would even recognize. You see, the moment that we say there is no standards is the moment that we really abandon the cross of Jesus Christ. If we're going to love, we've got to love with the truth. If we're going to love, we've got to love through the message of Jesus. And to do that, we've got to have good theology. We've got to have a good ethic and moral standard that we live by. And it's the one that He's revealed to us in His Word. But we've got to be careful that we don't take that to the extreme and leave love behind as well. You see, what Paul says when he prays for all three of these is they've got to be in balance. You see, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he said, Man, you guys, you cling to love and you're holding on to love, but you left everything else behind. You see, but if you read the Gospels, Jesus over and over confronts a group that is the exact opposite. He over and over again confronts this group called the Pharisees that are clinging to theology and ethical standards that are absolutely impossible and leaving love completely behind. And so over and over when you read the Gospels, he calls out this hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And he says, listen, you guys say that you love God, but you, you hate what God has created. You say that you love God and you care about what God cares about, and yet you don't pay attention to those that are crying out for help. You see, if we leave love behind and all we focus on is this academic knowledge of God and these impossible ethic standards that, that we are setting, then really we are no better than the Pharisees ourselves. Really, let's be honest, we are the priest and the Levite who walked on the other side of the road and left the poor man laying in a side ditch because we couldn't get our hands dirty, because we were trying to live up to this ethical standard and this theological standard of who God was that we couldn't bother to show love like a Samaritan did. You realize the the hero of the story of the good Samaritan, they call it that for a reason, he's the one that loved like Jesus loved. He's the one that that loved and balance of theology and ethics because did you notice in that story when he gets the guy up, he bandages the guy, he takes him to a hotel, and notice the ethical standards that he says. He says, listen, I'm going to pay for this guy, and if it's more than what I'm paying you, I have an ethical standard that I'm going to pay back what I owe. And so if it's more than I pay you right now, then I'll come back and I'll pay that later. That's an ethical standard. You see, he's not just a good Samaritan that's full of love. He's a good Samaritan that's full of love, and he understands the ethics that God has put out there because he understands who God is. That is the principle that Paul is praying for. That is the reason that Paul is praying for this excellence in love, That this picture that there's this balance of theology and ethics and love, and they're all wrapped into one together. You see, it's the same idea that he tells the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 15, and he says this, he says, To speak the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head in Christ. This excellence in love that Paul is praying for the Philippians, this is an excellence in love that balances theology, and yet it balances ethics and morals in love together. It's, Paul is praying for these two or these three together because without any of them, We don't look like the Christian church should look. Without any of them, we don't resemble what Christ died for. In fact, we don't even resemble what Christ came for. You see, this is what we should be praying for ourselves This is what we should be praying for ourselves when we pray, God, I want to grow more in my knowledge of You and expand my ethical standards so that I impact those that are around me. This is what we should be praying for each other. This is what we should be praying for our kids at night. God, I'm praying for my kids that they grow every day in their knowledge of You and they grow in their width of, of love for You. This is what we should be praying for every church and specifically our church. This is what we should be praying because we want our church to be known for a church that loves. But we also want our church to be known for a church that has solid theological standing. This is our ground and we don't compromise for it. We also want to be known for a church that, that takes a moral stand on what God says and what God values, we value. And where God draws the line, we draw the line. We want to be a church that has all three of these in a balance. And I want to share with you, that doesn't just happen with a pastor. That happens with you that are sitting here and you that are watching online because if we pray this together, then we will live this out together. This is what Paul is praying for. That there is a balance of love and theology and moral standard. This is what he wants them to keep growing in each and every day. So that six months from now they can look back and say, Yeah, I know God far more now than I did six months ago. Then a year from now they can look back and say, I know God more than I did a year ago. And I love Him more because I know Him more. And I've spread out and I've seen what He approves and what He doesn't approve of. And I've uh, spread that to the banks. And now I'm impacting everything that is around around me because I know him deeper and wider than I did three years ago or four years ago. And because of that, I love him all the more. You see, the more we know of him, the more we love him. The more we love him, the more we want to know about him. And That's what Paul is praying this balance of knowing Him, and this moral standard, and this love that all is tied together. You see, that balance is essential for what Paul prays in the next part, in the very first part of verse 10. He says these pray praying, they sees this excellence within the choices that are before us, this ability to know and approve what is excellent. I had a young student one time when I was teaching. He was the star quarterback of the football team. And some of you have heard this story before. This young man, he was great. He was an excellent quarterback. And that's what everybody told him. Okay, The, the coaches told him he was an excellent quarterback quarterback they told him he was the best quarterback and in fact there was no question people in town loved him they told him he was excellent how great he was and so he had this idea that he was going to go on and play football at the next level he had this dream that he was going to be a college football player a college quarterback for one of the big uh, division one schools and this is what he was going to do and so to get to that next level he was good and so he got invited to what we call a college id camp and a college ID camp works like this, that instead of scouts for colleges going all over the country, they came up with this idea: Let's get a bunch of scouts together, and let's bring football players together, and so we can watch a bunch of them all at one time. rather than having to go here on Friday night and there on the next Friday, we miss them. So let's invite them all to this camp, this training facility, together, and let's see them what they can do. And so this young man, who was one of my students, he got invited to one of these camps. And he went and he spent all weekend working out and trying to show off for these college recruiting uh, coaches and throwing the ball hard and fast because, man, he was excellent. And he came back and he, he came to class that Monday and he got to school kind of early. He came to my class and I asked him, I said, how did it go? And he said, oh, Mr. Rex, I learned a lot. And I said, well, that's great. That, that's awesome. And he said, well, I learned that I may not be as good as I thought I was. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I learned there's a big difference between what a high school coach calls excellence and what a college coach considers excellent. You see, for him, he was a big name in a small town. He was the best that that town had to offer. And the difference for a high school coach is that we have this very limited pool of players that we get to look for. Okay? They have to live within the district of our school. And then we get to choose, of all the kids that live in that district that want to play the sport, we get to choose the best ones of those options. That's not the rules in college. The rules in college is you go where you want to or you go where they want you to go. So you can live on the East Coast and go play football on the West Coast or or go play soccer on the West Coast or vice versa. You can do whatever. There's no limits. They're not limited to a certain area. They can go and recruit from anywhere. And so what he realized is that when he stepped on that field, man, he he left the high school field where he could throw further, he could throw harder, he could throw faster and more accurate than anybody else that was around. And when he got to that guy, D-Camp, you know what he found out? That he was probably one of the worst ones there. That everyone could throw the ball as good and as fast and as hard and as accurate. And most of them could do it better than him. You see, his idea of what was excellent really changed when it expanded this pool that was around him. You see, suddenly he wasn't the best of what was here. He had to be the best of what was there. He had to be the best of the best because that was were really the only ones that were invited to this camp. And you see Paul continues praying for this excellence in love, but he goes on to continue and he's gonna pray now that they have this excellence in in choice, that they have this excellence in understanding that what we consider excellent may not be all that there is. And so what Paul is really praying for them, understanding in verse ten, that he wants them to have a better choice than what they see. And so he prays in verse 10. He says that you will approve the things that are superior. And Paul says, listen, I don't want you to think that your choices are limited to what you see around you. I don't want you to think that that what you see is all that there is. Right. So understand that Paul is writing to a church that is surrounded by pagan idols. They're surrounded by all these different gods and all these different cultures. And they're all saying, this is the best that there is. You should follow this God because he's the best. He controls this. Well, no, you should follow this God because he controls this. And Paul says, listen, no, 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 no. I want you to understand. I want you to be able to prove and recognize what is superior to all of that. You don't have to choose between this little God and that little God and this little God. How about you pick the God that's over all of it that controlled all of it, that sustains all of it, that holds all of it in His hands. How about you understand that He is superior. He is far beyond anything. He is not just the, the, this little pool of gods that you have to choose from. He is the best and far beyond the best of anything that you've ever seen or realized in your life. And so I begin to think about what this looks like in our current situation, our current reality that we're living in. And Paul says, listen, you don't have to settle for what this world says is the best. You don't. I want you to be able to approve and to recognize that there is something far superior to this world. You see, when we look for a leader in our nation, we don't have to settle for the lesser of two evils. Because we can pray to the one who is superior to all. We don't have to align our moral standard with a party that is the lesser of two evils because we can approve and we can recognize the God that is superior to everything that we can align our compass with Him because we don't have to choose the best of the worst. We can choose the best of the best. We can follow Christ because He is superior. He is more excellent. He is higher than the highest high. He is the best of the best. He is everything that is beyond anything that we can ever imagine. Paul says, I want you to get to this point where you can approve and you can recognize that all these other things are inferior compared to what Christ is for for you that you don't have to settle for them because you know what is best. And so, Paul starts off praying that they grow in this balanced view of knowledge and discernment. And then he continues that they are praying for their excellence in choices. And then he moves on, and he's praying for their excellence in character. You see, the last part of verse 10 Paul prays that they can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Some translations will say they'll be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, which means until the day of judgment or until Christ returns. And Paul is, is not praying that they recognize Christ as a pure, but now that they live in response to that, they live a pure and a blameless life. And this word blameless is kind of an interesting word. It, it means that if something is smooth, that there is no blemishes in it, and it means that it's so smooth that nothing will stick to it. My dad, when I was growing up, had a 70 fastback Mustang. And we loved that car. Man, we, when we first got it, it was not in the greatest shape, but we worked on that thing, and we polished, and we waxed, and we waxed, and polished, and buffed that thing. And so one of my dad's favorite things to do um, every time we would wax that car was show me how smooth it was. And some of you may have done this trick. When we first got that, he, he would take a towel. When we first got that car, he would take a towel, and he would try to slide it up the hood of the car. And when we first got that car, the, ru- the paint was so rough that it wouldn't move. It would just sit there. It was stuck in one spot. But man, we polished that thing, we buffed that thing, we shined that thing up, and we worked so hard to get that thing to be blameless, to get that thing to be smooth, so that when my dad took that same towel years later and he slid it across the hood of the car, man, it didn't even stick. It just slid all the way across up the hood and then down off the side. That's how slick that car was. That's what Paul is using here when he says, I want you to be blameless. I want you to live such a life that there's no humps or or jumps that people have to go over. I want you to live such a life that is so pure and so full of integrity that when someone brings an accusation against you, when someone rubs that towel against you, it won't stick. It'll just slide right off. Paul says that I'm praying that you live such a life that when somebody brings something against you that's not true... You don't have to worry about other people hearing about it because it's not even going to carry the weight with it. It's, it's not even going to go beyond. It's not going to stick to you at all because you're going to be such blameless life. You're going to have such a life of integrity that it's just going to slide right off. And so somebody's going to hear this false statement about you and be like, no, I know that's not true. Because this guy lives with integrity. Because this guy lives a life, or this lady lives a life that is blameless. And this lady lives a life that is absolutely pure. And so it becomes this idea that the accusations that people have, they don't hang around because there's nowhere for them to stick. There's nowhere for them to hang on to. And so understand this excellent in character, it doesn't happen overnight. It's something you have to work for for the rest of your life. It's something that we build with a reputation of integrity, a reputation of being blameless and pure, as one author put it. He says that excellence is a habit, rather than a once-off act. A commitment to excellence then is the idea that we bridge the gap between an idea and the execution of that idea over and over and over again until it becomes part of the DNA of the person or the organization. You see, when we strive for excellence and character in Christ, in Paul, in Christ, what Paul is saying, he's praying that I'm, I'm praying that you understand the holiness of God, and that you live that out day in and day out. You bridge the gap between His holiness and your holiness time and time and time again so that it becomes part of your DNA. It becomes part of who you are. It becomes part of everything that makes you who you are is found in who He is. That we live out the holiness of God. And there's one final aspect of Paul's prayer that I want to mention. And I told you I'd spend most of our time in verse 9 and we'd fly through the rest of them. Uh, But this last aspect that Paul is praying for is that he is praying for excellence in production. He says in verse 11 that he is praying that we be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Now, ultimately, what Paul is praying for is that our lives be so filled with the things that bring glory and praise to God that there's not room for anything else. That there is so much fruit of righteousness in our life that that covers everything. But I want you to notice this is a passive verb. Meaning that he's not wanting us to produce this, knowing that we can't produce this. What he's praying is that God will produce this in our lives through Christ. That God will produce the fruit of righteousness in us and through us. And so he kind of changes the picture for just a moment of this river that we've been talking about. And now he, he gives us this picture of a plant that is going to bear fruit. And if a plant is going to bear the most fruit, it's got to be in the hands of somebody that knows what they're doing. And so what Paul is really praying for the Philippians is, listen, I want you to be the most productive you can. And to do that, you've got to trust that you are in the Master's hands, that you are being controlled and shaped by the Master. And so all of us sitting here, every one of us would be fine with praying, yes, Jesus, I want the fruit of righteousness in my life. I completely want to be filled up with the fruit of righteousness. And we're fine praying with that, Except sometimes we forget that in order to produce the most amount of fruit, sometimes there's got to be some pruning that takes place in our life. You see, if you've got a plant that starts to grow, and you just let that plant grow, and, and we've got some um, pepper plants that we started growing a long time ago, and I'll be honest with you, I've got a pepper plant that's about this tall. Do you know how many peppers I've got off that pepper plant? One. I've got a massive pepper plant and no peppers. Could I say that that's filled with peppers? No. You know why it's not filled with peppers? Because I didn't go through and cut off those little shoots when they were growing and then spend all its time producing leaves, which are good, but not time producing what it needed to be producing the most. And so all of us sitting in this room and all of us watching online, we would say, God, I want fruits of righteousness in my life, but I want to spend my time doing what I want to do. I want to spend my time growing the way I want to grow. And realize that if we're going to grow in the fruits of righteousness, if we're going to grow these fruits of righteousness, what it really means is, God, here, listen, here I am. If there's things in my life that you need to cut out of my life, that you need to make room out of my life for, so that I can produce more fruit, then do it. You see, sometimes you've got other plants that they don't need to be cut, they just need to be tamed. They just grow wild, and so you've got to bend them and twist them and tie them up, constrain them in a certain way, so they will grow like they're supposed to. God, if, if, if I'm going to produce the most, if I'm going to bring you the most glory and I'm going to bring you the most praise with every aspect of my life, then God, here I am. Bend me, twist me, shape me, tie me, constrain me however you need to so that I can be the most fruitful that you, I can be the most fruit-bearing that I can be so that I can bring you the most glory and the most praise that I can with this life that I have. You see, all of us are willing to pray for the fruit. But the question I need you to ask is, how many of us are willing to pray for the pruning that it takes to get to the fruit? How many of us are willing to pray for the the bending and the twisting and the tying and the shaping that it takes to get to the most amount of fruit, the most amount of glory that we can give? How many of us are willing to do what we're going to pray here and what we're going to sing here in just a minute, just to give Him the room in our life to do what He needs to do? Paul is praying that we will grow in our love and our depth and our knowledge of who God is. He's praying that we can understand that God is bigger and superior to everything. He's praying that we live a life that is pure and blameless. And he's also praying this last part, the way we're going to do all that is we give up the rights to our life and we say, God, use us, shape us, make room for us, cut us, prune us, whatever you need to do so that we can bring you the most glory and the most honor in every aspect of our life. You see, what we need to do in this prayer and what Paul is praying the Philippians do is you've started, God has started a good work in you. He started here with you, but this isn't where He wants you to be. He wants you to grow in all these aspects so that you become excellent, so that you become a follower of the One who is superior to everything, so that you become what is producing the most fruit and the most glory and the most praise for Him. And you don't do that by staying where you're at. You do that by pursuing excellence each And every day. Let's pray together.